good to go? Yes, sir. Okay, showtime. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to the Brent Holland Show. A brand new JFK documentary tonight. You don't want to miss this one. Jump in your most comfy chair, settle in and relax, get those feet up, kick back, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. This is your time. You deserve it. Take this time for yourself. Okay, the documentary is called The Searchers, a portrait of researchers of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Now, 14 years in the making, the film uses never-before-seen interviews, archival footage, and recently declassified documents to chronicle the past and present of these ordinary citizens and their contributions to revealing the truth about the crime of the 20th century, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. As my friend Robert Groden says, the senior researcher for Oliver Stone's cinematic masterpiece film, JFK, it may be too late for justice, but it's never too late for the truth. The director, producer, and editor of The Searchers, and our guest tonight, is Randolph Benson. Randolph Benson's work has won, excuse me, an Academy Award for Best Student Documentary. Benson received the Eastman Kodak Excellence in Filmmaking Award at the Cannes Film Festival. He has been an instructor of film and video at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University for over a decade. It's my great pleasure to welcome Randy to the show just as he takes a drink of water. <laughs> Is that great. What? <laughs> I'm sorry, I've never been good with timing. It's great to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Okay, Randy, you've got this wonderful documentary. Can you tell us all the great researchers that are included in this documentary? You've got some classics here. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it starts with John Judge, um, but we visit. I have live interviews with um, some original researchers, Mark Lane, Josiah Thompson, um, we go to Gary Aguilar, um, Rex Bradford at the Mary Farrell Foundation. Um, gosh, I need to look at a list. It's there's, okay. There's Deborah Conway, John Kellen, yeah. uh, Rex Bradford, as you just said, uh, Lisa Pease, Walt Brown. Uh, Jim DiGenio. Jim Mars, uh, Josiah mm -hmm. Thompson, Robert Groden, of course, Cyril Wecht, folks, Dr. Cyril Wecht. Maybe we could start off, you know, Mark was a dear friend of mine. He actually wrote the foreword for my book, and he'd been on the show many, many times. Mark has left us, folks. He passed away a couple of years ago. Maybe we could start off with a synopsis of Mark. Um, I have to tell you, folks, I watched the video, the documentary, and I highly recommend it. There's a wonderful scene in it where Mark is, uh, he's at his bookshelf, folks, and uh, the complete 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report are on the bookshelf. And he pulls a book out that is significantly different in color, appearance, and says, this is a book that belongs right alongside the Warren Commission books. Now, the viewer, I would expect, is expecting something deep, profound, some kind of research book, perhaps one of Mark's very own. Then Mark simply says, the title of the book is The Complete Fairy Tales of the Brothers Grimm. Now, that's Mark Lane. That was a fabulous piece of footage, by the way. Can you give a little bit more of the yeah. background about Mark and how you came to include him in your film? Well, as you know, and, and most, most if not all of your listeners know, he's 
a titan of not only the JFK research community, but of the American judicial system. Um, he said in my film that he's been practicing law a quarter of the life of the American judicial system. And, uh, um, and I, I have to tell you that one of my, one of my major regrets, my, one of my major professional regrets is not finishing the film in time for him to see it. Um, he, he was giving, he was kind, and he was supremely funny, um, sharp, sharp wit. And, you know, for someone who's most likely the busiest person you've ever met, he gave his time very freely. And, uh, and again, just so kind. I spent a day with him in his house in Charlottesville. And, uh, and it was just, uh, it was a wonderful day. And, you know, some, some interviews are, are, every interview is different. Some are, it's very difficult to get someone to speak, but um, you know, Mark Mark Lane was one of those interviewees that I would just ask him a very basic question, and he would expound poetically for the next hour, and hitting all the all the topics that I wanted to touch on. Um, I think he enjoyed speaking speaking about himself. I think he liked being asked about himself and uh, how he got his start, why he even bothered with what, from the very beginning, he said it, it, he just faced barrier after barrier. And he was already a, a successful lawyer in New York and a North Carolina, um, New York legislator. Um, you know, his career was on the rise and he chose to take a slight detour for the next 53 years of his life. And what a detour, folks. I should tell you also, Mark was JFK's New York City campaign manager. He also was nominated and won the Democratic seat in New York. Um, also, you know, he's done all kinds of amazing things. He was the lawyer for the uh, American Indian Movement at Wounded Knee, 1972. He was in Jonestown the night of the Kool-Aid massacre. There's a bit of an ironic story there, actually, that Mark told me. He said, Brent, I was down there. I'm not going to give you the whole story. I escaped into the bush. And when Mark's father found out by a neighbor said, you know, Mark's probably dead. He went down there with the senator and everything, and everybody's dead. He said, no, Mark can talk his way out of it, and he could. Mark had the gift of being able to succinctly put forward his thoughts. It just flowed, and you've captured that in this wonderful, wonderful thing. Thank you. His first work, maybe we can talk about that, because that was a seminal work. This, for a lot of people, really brought to light, and that's what this documentary does, folks. It goes back to the people who were there on the ground days after the assassination, if not right after the assassination, the ones who brought this forward. Now, this is, I've got to remind people, too, this is pre-computer age. You know, there's no email, there's no texting. Anything that's going to be communicated, you've got to find a, a pay telephone. I hope we're not that far along that people don't know what I'm talking about when I say a pay telephone. <laughs> no faxes, way before fax, way before fax, and snail mail. 
So think of that. You're, you've got an idea. You want to share it with people. You have to mail it to them. It's going to take a week to get to the other side or more of the country. Rush to Judgment, seminal work, book and video. Did he talk about that? Did you? Uh, oh, oh, absolutely. And in fact, we um, we started with the tipping point for him was days after the assassination. Is as uh, more and more more and more facts were coming coming to light or press was um, the mainstream media in the United States was really turning with the government's version that this lone nut communist sympathizer killed President Kennedy. And him being the jurist, he just didn't think that was right. And so he wrote the lawyers, um, what's his, the very first seminal work in um, the research community a, a lawyer's brief about um, in the defense of Lee Harvey Oswald in the case of the Kennedy assassination. And it was in the uh, the national, I'll remember it as soon as. It was a, kind of a socialist magazine. I'm trying to think of it too, but the nationalist or something like that. It was yeah. along those lines. It was a lawyer's brief and the New York Times picked it up. And when they picked it up, that was a catalyzing event that finally these lone critics out in the wilderness, finally they realized that there were other, of, other, other people just like them out there. So that's how Ray Marcus and Mark Lane got together and Shirley Martin in Oklahoma and Penn Jones in Midlothian and Weisberg and all the first-generation researchers, they really found out about each other, like you said, with snail mail and reading newspapers, devouring newspapers from all over the country. And, um, and then Mark, of course, uh, got deeper into the case. The uh, Marguerite Oswald hired him to represent Lee Harvey Oswald in front of the Warren Commission, and um, and then that all of that his research with that led to writing the book Rush to Judgment, and in fact, uh, in film school, when I was in film school, I had to, you know, we watched works of Emil D'Antonio, who directed Rush to Judgment. But of course, they never showed us Rush to Judgment. So years later, when I, when I was researching um, this movie, whether I had a movie or not, I came across the film Rush to Judgment by one of my favorite directors, Emil D'Antonio. And little did I know that my two worlds kind of came together right there. The documentary folks and our guest tonight, Randy Benson's our guest, the documentary The Searchers, a portrait of researchers of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Now, you've got all these wonderful names in it, and we're going to get to many of them tonight, folks. But I wanted to ask you a question. You mentioned Harold Weisberg left us as well. Was there any researchers of that ilk that you regret not being able to include? Was there somebody that you really wanted to include and you weren't able to? 
Well, there there were so many people. Um, this the community is far-reaching, and even um, there are many lesser-known names out there who have made huge contributions. Um, but yes, absolutely, there are the contemporary authors that I would love to have included: Joe McBride, Dave Talbot, Bill Pepper. I mean, um, but um, I mean yourself, you oh, your work right, with that'll Night Fright. That'll be part two. Yes, <laughs> you know, part two <laughs> is always cool. better than the one. <laughs> and um, you know, the work that Lano Sonic does is just top notch and um but you know making a documentary like this i had i was working with 13 interviews as as it stood and um i i teach i teach at um the center for documentary studies at duke and i have um i'm surrounded by a lot of professionals and colleagues who will not hesitate to give you um difficult feedback, difficult but necessary feedback. And, you know, they said, and I agree with them, that I just had too many talking heads as it, as it was. I just couldn't add any more people. And so what I tried to do was just create a document to let people know, people outside of the community realize that there was a whole world of people working to find out the truth behind the assassination of their president. And so it's not necessarily about any one person, it's about the community. And that everything we know, virtually everything we know about the Kennedy assassination has been uncovered by the your average citizen on the street. Just ordinary people who were fed up and they weren't getting the truth, and they decided to start digging it up themselves. Why? Was there a common thread uniting them all? Was there something specific that united them all? Yeah. I, um, outwardly, they, they would all say justice. It just wasn't right. And they were angry and wanted to pursue finding out the truth. The truth is important, and they always went back to the truth. No matter what it is, we can handle it. But um, as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, um, getting to meet all of these people and all the people over the last 14 years that I've met at conferences and that I've spoken to on the phone and, and gotten to hang out with, the unifying trait to me is that they all have hope. And that, that was one of the, what I found most ironic about this whole film. I thought it would just be a very, um, once I got in this project, I thought it would just be so depressing and so heavy. And, um, and what I found was that by meeting all these people and seeing the, the work they do over for over a half dec half a century that they're they have such hope and belief in the world and in their fellow humans and the the very fact that an ordinary person can work and find a kernel or a nugget of truth and working together they can put it together 
each little piece of the puzzle together, everyone working together to really uh, find the truth. And and to me, that that's one of the most um, heartening, uplifting stories that I've had the honor to be part of. You know, it's 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 a remarkable thing that um, the researchers have done. Did you find in all cases it transcended personal monetary gain? You know, I get these comments on YouTube, and I'm sure I'm going to get some on, on this show as well. Essentially, it goes like this. Oh, he's full of beans. All he's doing is trying to sell his book and, and make money. Now, in my own case, I have my own book, folks. I make $2. Are you ready for this? $2 a book, okay? <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's it. Okay, that's a lot of books I've got to sell before I order my Mercedes. Okay, so it's, <laughs> we don't do this for the money. In all cases, every single researcher I've talked to, and I'm sure you can confirm this, do not do it for the monetary gain. They do it for other reasons, as just explained. Can we talk a little bit about Robert Groden? In the documentary, he talks about three milestone events and I was wondering if we could start off with the first one he mentions, which is Jim Garrison. That seems to be a big one. Oh, yeah. he. Uh, well, the Garrison investigation was um, not only was it the first peak. Um, a lot of my researchers talked about the peaks and valleys of, of the case um, over the years. And the first peak was the Garrison investigation. And... Um, you've talked about it on your show and I, um, I loved your interview with John Barber, the director of a terrific recent film, um, who was good friends with, with Jim Garrison. So I can only attempt to tell that story, but that was an event that brought all of the re the researchers out there. That was a catalyzing event that brought researchers from all over the country together. Finally, someone, someone in elected office, someone with the power to actually use the machinations of justice to search out the truth and bring to justice the perpetrators of the crime, finally they had someone. And, and, uh, so if I'm not mistaken, the DA's office in New Orleans became almost a clearinghouse for all these, all these um, clippings from all over the country would flood in and people would send dimes, dollar bills, fives and tens to help and offer, offer their assistance. If you need anything in San Francisco, I can run down the street and get it or Oklahoma or New York City and um, not only in the case was the Garrison investigation critical, but it also helped bring together the community again. Um, so I guess, uh, and it also validated what all these disparate voices in the wilderness had been working on. Finally, they saw the case being made to the public, being made in court. 
Yeah, they weren't being ostracized anymore. They were being taken serious. And Jim Garrison with a trial, I mean, you know, the press was all over. It was the first trial and only trial, folks, that was ever brought uh, against someone for the murder of John F. Kennedy. Now, back to Robert Groden, is included in the three milestone events. The next one was Geraldo Rivera's JFK Goodnight America, which took place, I think it was on March, March 6th, 1975. And it was the first time that the Sapruder film, that very famous film that everybody's seen over and over and over again, either on the internet or in the movie JFK, Back and to the Left, Back and to the Left is the best way to describe it. Costner describes that in JFK. He was the first one to bring that to mainstream. And this was unprecedented. Could we talk a little bit about that? And you brought that forward very, very succinctly and very profoundly in the documentary. Oh, thanks. It's a it's a it's a very profound event. He um, uh, it was uh, Bob Groden and Dick Gregory, and this is when Geraldo Rivera was uh, kind of like a the bad kid in the in the mainstream media neighborhood, and he took a chance and uh, he told ABC that he was going to show it. And they said, no, you're not. We're going to get sued. And Geraldo, you know, then he was a newbie. He hadn't made his uh, made himself yet. But he signed a liability release, releasing ABC and accepting all liability from showing that film onto himself. He assumed that risk. So he he deserves a lot of credit. And uh, and Bob Groden brought it on and narrated it. And it was, like you said, it was the very first time that the American public had seen the assassination of the president. And and uh, actually, in a lot of my screenings, one of the most surprising things to me is that for many people in my screenings, that was the first time that a lot of those people had seen it, too, at that moment in my film and it's uh you're doing good work my friend congratulations yeah. that's essential like, for this generation because youtube right now is not monetizing or bothering to support alternative views of anything they've really the only thing they're going to monetize these days folks are cat videos makeup videos and gaming videos which is fine but unfortunately 95 percent of millennials don't read magazines they don't read newspapers they don't read period they don't watch network news so all their information 95 percent comes from where youtube so in a generation's time when those people have to come along and make decisions and problem solve they'll be able to tell you what color rouge you should be wearing that's where we're headed now this is new in the american mosaic we've never had that before there's always been competition on networks and always other sources to get your information from. Not anymore. That has changed. It needs to change because it's 1984, folks. Sorry, that's my little shot at YouTube for the night. I'll be. That's my rant. <laughs> no, rant away. You're preaching so to the choir. What you're doing is essential. You're educating the public to alternative ideas, but not only alternative ideas, but the truth. And you're educating them to their history, their own history. And without that, there would be nobody picking up 
the banner and walking forward. And you've probably inspired people to do that already. The documentary folks we're talking about tonight, The Searchers, a portrait of researchers of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, our guest and its director, producer, and editor tonight, Randy Benson. Randy, what were some of the challenges that you faced in order to bring this to light? Well, um, a lot of challenges. And, you know, what you said earlier about the financial um, issues of undertaking a project in this realm. Um, yeah, it was, it was surprising to me early on. Um, so my student film won, won an Academy Award. And, um, and I say that not, not to uh, toot my own horn, but to say that in, generally in the film world, if you've created a piece of work that, that other people have found value in, then typically the same people, the same distributor that bought that film would be interested in your next film. Um, and my, that the film I made got distribution and it was in film festivals and a distribution all over the world and, um, a wonderful way to start out. But my next film was this little film I was thinking about making about this, these people who study the JFK assassination. And when I would have that conversation with distributors or broadcasters, it was just, blank stare and they would say what is this about conspiracy theorists or is it about a new theory I'd say no 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 it's a portrait of people who are doing this work uncovering all the document all the all the documents it's just a, a portrait of the people and I am thoroughly convinced that I, my, those meetings would have lasted quite a bit longer had I said, yeah, it's about conspiracy nuts. If I had said those words, I, I'm pretty convinced I would have gotten at least a much longer meeting. But when, uh, when I didn't say that, it was a eye-opening experience early on. So Let's that's one reason it took so long. To make. Let's, let's continue in that line of thought because there are some documentaries that come out off the sausage mill, as I call them, and they're biased, like anything, against any type of conspiracy that took place. In other words, they always prop up the idea that Oswald acted alone and there was no conspiracy. And one of them that comes to mind was JFK Beyond the Magic Bullet. Now, this is a documentary, folks, that was produced by the Discovery Channel. Talk about dishonest. They set up a simulation of the magic bullet. And the narrator, this is what I want to show you, how difficult it is to get our side of the story out into truth. The narrator says, the bullet comes into JFK's back. It exits his neck. This is after they've done a trial shooting. It's very clear on the video that the bullet comes out JFK's chest because the angle that the bullet shot from, which matches identically to what the Warren Commission claims, it's impossible for it to come out JFK's neck. It can't happen. But 
they say, oh, it comes out his neck, even though we can very clearly see it coming out of his chest. This is just complete disinformation. There's another one that was just on the History Channel. I understand it was pulled. But the main guy in it is a guy by the name of uh, Bob Bear, and he's ex-CIA. And this is what the CIA does, folks. They take facts and they spin them so that you don't know which way is up. And they spin them always to make themselves look good. Now, in this video, I'll just tell you really quickly, Bob Bear is not honest. He says that Castro had something to do with the assassination. Castro did not have anything to do with the assassination. Listen, I interviewed Ted Sorensen. <laughs> if anybody's yeah. going to know what happened, it's going to be Ted. And Ted told me what happened. So there you go. You have to get my book <laughs> so I can make my two bucks. By yes, I do. <laughs> so essentially what Bob Bear says in this history documentary is that Castro was listening to the radio, not the radio, I'm sorry, listening through covert operations with antennas and everything to the police radios coming out of Dallas. All Castro had to do during the assassination was listen to the news coming out of Miami. He was that close. I mean, this is just utter, utter sheer nonsense. And never mind the fact that he was with French journalist Jean Daniel. Sorensen told me Kennedy was trying to make some kind of an arrangement with Castro through back channels. All he wanted Castro to do was break away from the Soviet Union, Sorensen told me, and maybe become some kind of Tito. That was the leader of Yugoslavia in those days, which was a communist socialist government but they were not under the umbrella or the yoke of the Soviet Union. So what I'm trying to say here, folks, very quickly, is that be careful when you see stuff on mainstream about JFK. Question everything, because I haven't seen one honest video yet, except the ones that I feature on this show. And once again, Randy Benson is our guest tonight, folks. The name of his documentary... The Searchers, a portrait of researchers of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And you can get that by just going to our website, clicking on the link there. It'll take you right to a spot where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Okay. I would be amiss if we didn't bring up Deborah Conway, publisher of my book, by the way, JFK Lancer. She puts on a magnificent conference every year in Dallas, Texas, Right around the time of the anniversary of the assassination, usually the 21st, 22nd, 23rd of November, and she brings in all these great people. Can we talk a little bit about why you sought out Deborah for this particular video? It was nice to see because very often she's omitted from things like this. Oh, yeah. I think, well, for me, she she was my my entry point into the assassination research world. Um, I had this idea in, um, the year 2000 and I was, you know, researching and doing as much reading as I could and devouring videos and going to the library. And, um, the summer of 2000, uh, the summer of 2001, I was online researching. I don't know if you remember, but there wasn't a whole lot of online researching going on. Um, before 2000, just little bits. But early on, Lancer had a very strong online presence. And uh, they did a great job. Deborah did a great job at getting a web presence and making it accessible 
to everyone in the world, but especially young people who were growing up with the net. And, uh, and there it was. And I saw that there was actually a conference. I had no idea. So uh, right, right there in August of 2001, I bought tickets to Dallas and bought tickets to the conference. And I didn't take my camera gear. I didn't take anything. I just took a pen and my ears so I could listen. Just And I just kept, I, I tell my students, the best thing you can do is to shut up and listen. So that's what I did. And met people in, um, and that's where I met um, uh, Peggy Davidson, a researcher in Dallas, a friend of Robert Grodin's, who told me that the Coalition on Political Assassinations was having a, a conference across town. So it was that weekend that I got to meet, um, or I was introduced to a wide range of research community. But, um, you know, for me, going to the Lancer Conference was the perfect entry point into the community because it, it was, people were really friendly and uh, there were a lot of first timers, a lot of rookies like me, and uh, we we weren't made to feel like we didn't have anything to offer. And uh, there were so many people who would just, you know, how many times have they given their opinions on the single bullet? But uh, they would, for a rookie like me, they would do it yet again with um, with all the enthusiasm and uh, support that they could. So it was a wonderful way to get in, the first stepping point. And the work that they that Deborah does is top uh, notch. For the community is great. Top notch. And folks, I gotta tell you, if Deborah Conway was a Canadian, without a doubt she would have had an order of Canada middle by now. You notice the way I said doubt. <laughs> Don't make me get my hockey stick. <laughs> a hockey game will break out. No, what was that? I thought girl? she was from Louisiana. Oh, she's French Canadian. Yeah, maybe. She's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Daily Plaza, first person witness accounts. Order yours right now. www.nightfrightshow.com. In your magnificent documentary, you captured a wonderful scene that I think defines her, and she's talking about inclusion of every single researcher and, most importantly, the audience, because she was comparing to what she puts on at Lancer, which is all-inclusive, as opposed to another conference she had attended where people were literally shut outside. And... Um, you know, she says something to the effect that it's about the audience as well. You have to make them welcome. And she gives a voice to the researchers uh, without question. And that, you've captured that. You've got it right there. So this is why the video is important, folks, because it goes into the history, the people who have made the differences and brought forth the history of the JFK assassination, but also his policies as well. And, you know, JFK was a global figure. Absolutely, he was the president of the United States. But, man, I tell you, there was a lot of tears shed 
in Canada when he passed away. I don't know how many streets are named across Canada, Kennedy Road, or we even have President Kennedy schools. That's how influential wow. he was. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, you can go right around the world and find that as well. So Deborah brings all these people together every year and gives them an equal footing, and she never judges. And that's Deborah Conway. Wonderful, wonderful woman. Randy, on your website, you talk about the 2017 JFK files that are about to be released, maybe. And I, I qualify that with a maybe because we don't know yet. It's up to Donald Trump. Uh, October 26th, they're supposed to be released, um, 2017. Can we talk a little bit about that and why you put that information on your website? Because this is even more uh, information that the public needs to know. Oh, absolutely. Well, a lot of my film is about the fruits of the labors of the um, of the community, and that primarily is release of the documents. And it's because of the researchers that the JFK Records Act was passed in '92, and uh, it wrapped up in '97. I believe, and uh, all all records pertaining to the JFK Records Act have to be the full release, unredacted, no later than October 26th of 2017. So, in fact, the release has has actually started um, a week before last. That's when the first 4,400 pages of documents and um, have been released. And already, um, uh, I think they were released at midnight, and hundreds of researchers, thousands probably, were um, ready to download from the uh, National Archives as soon as those links became hot. And so by October 26th, they should, they all have to be released with one the one caveat, though, is that um, only by executive order can release be stopped. And so the research community t is, is split on what Trump might do. Um, the release has started, but there are an estimated 50,000-plus documents out there still. So, and you can, you can bet that the that the juiciest documents are will be the last ones to be released. Um, Eleven fifty nine on the twenty fifth. But if they get released, we'll see. What's your opinion? If on they that? get released, do you, do you think they're going to find a smoking gun in there that we don't know about? Well, um, researcher Rex Bradford um, mentioned that in my film that there are no smoking guns in the documents. That's not the way it, it works, but. I like I like describing it to the truth of the JFK assassination is like um, an astrom astronomer looking at a black hole. We can't we can't necessarily see it, but we see how everything around it is affected, and that's how they can map out very precisely what a black hole is, its properties, its density, its its vastness, um, and so there's not a document that says um, this is how we did it and why and who was involved. But 
for instance, uh, years ago, that the CIA document that's in my film, 1035-960, was released that in that document, the it's written from the psychological operations unit at the CIA, at CIA to all station chiefs around the world. And it's called How to Countering Criticism of the Warren Report. And it has a step-by-step um, list on how to counter critics of the Warren Commission. And um, call them communists, call them financially motivated, what we were t- talking about before. Use elites, your elite contacts in the media. And for me, the most damning of it all, of them all, is um, call them conspiracy theorists. Now, that's the very first, that's the very first joining of those two words in the English language. It, It didn't exist as a phrase before that document. And so, so while that's not a smoking gun, that, that gives us so much information, not only about how, how the CIA was um, going after critics, but also how they work, and that's how they think. And so I think there may be smoking gun documents. Um, there may be, if we ever get Oswald's tax records, I think they might be as damning as a president's tax records might be. Yeah, I don't think there's a, there is a smoking gun document, but there are plenty of documents that, that have already been released that have, that have shown us beyond a reasonable doubt that the Warren Commission was was wrong. It was incorrect. It was a flawed investigation. If, if there were any, if if there were any people of good intent on investigating, they never had a chance to do good work, and it was co-opted by the CIA and the FBI, and. Uh, and that's in best case scenario. So um, I think there will be a lot of revelations. Um, another document that was that's been released, and these are all because of the researchers, was the Operation Northwoods document, which is which has been called the most horrific plan ever devised by the U.S. military, and it was. It was a, a plan that was written, that was signed by Lyman Lemitzer and given to Kennedy um, to help create public sentiment to support an invasion of Cuba. And the plan outlined ways of doing that, which involved um, the downing of civilian aircraft, um, uh, organizing fake terror events, having riots on the streets of American cities, and, uh, and uh, providing casualty lists of Americans to the media, fake casualty lists, 
all to engender support for an invasion of Cuba. And Kennedy, Kennedy was furious when he, when he received it and threw it away, threw it back in their face and said, get out of here with that kind of thing. Sorensen told me about that event too. Kennedy was livid, folks. He was absolutely livid because he'd just been presented with this list, as Randy just listed off, of events, false flag events. They also wanted to have a false flag attack on Guantanamo. And we're going to literally dress up American soldiers in Cuban fatigues and have them attack Guantanamo base as a pretext to invade Castro. Kennedy was absolutely livid. He said, if we invade Cuba, it's going to lead to nuclear war. That's why he didn't supply, quote unquote, the air support. He was never supposed to in the Bay of Pigs. But I'm getting off track. But just to pull it back a bit, he told Sorensen, he said, they're all crazy over there at the Pentagon. They're crazy. He said, we've got to get this under control. We've got to do something. So you're absolutely right. And that's another part of this great documentary, folks. You're going to learn all this stuff that you may not have known before. And it's right there, and it's put together with all the people that brought this forward. Okay, now, a documentary, a film, it's a, it's a complex piece to put together by yourself. So you need a team. Film is all about creating a team, folks. I can tell you that because I compose music for television and film with Anthony D.P. Mann from Bleak December Productions. We just finished a couple of projects, one with Sherlock Holmes with Sir Derek Jacobi, and you'll be able to see him in, in his new movie coming up, Murder on the Orient Express. And the other one was a version of Dracula with the first black actor to play Dracula, Tony Todd, the other candy man himself. And his voice, folks, <laughs> I, turned the, I turned the lights on in the studio when I was composing. And I kept looking behind me just to make sure Tony Todd wasn't standing there. So all I have to say is I know how complex it is. Can we talk about a few of the people that were involved and helped you out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, early on when I realized that this getting funding for this was going to be difficult, so um, it's primarily self-funded. Um, I had a uh, um, uh, uh, fiscal sponsorship through the Southern Documentary Fund here in the States, and so I was able to get at um, uh, donations that were tax deductible, which was great, which was a big help. And I got a lot of support from organizations um, who knew me as a filmmaker and as a teacher of film. Um, but if it wasn't for um, skilled, my, the skill of my cinematographer, Lance Barbour, coming aboard, um, and, you know, we, I would pay expenses, but I, I couldn't pay. He was a working cinematographer in D.C. at the time. I couldn't afford those rates. And, but he shot my, we were in film school together. He shot my student film and I shot his film. And so together we went out to attack another subject. Um, but he he refused he wouldn't take money for it because he believed in the project and um and that's with a film like this 
especially something that takes so much time, it was, you know, Lance um, coming aboard and the producer, John Schoenfeld, um, another friend from film school who, who had uh, been a producer in L.A. for a long time and decided to come, come back to North Carolina to raise a family. And he came aboard and um, three and a half or four years ago, and him coming aboard is what really helped me be able to finish. Because as you know, a, a huge project like this, you can do the heavy lifting, but it's organizing and getting all the releases and and just you just can't do it alone and he came aboard and gave me structure to so I could do that crazy creative stuff and I'd know that the that all the details in other areas of finishing a film were being were being taken care of um, did John and, and Lance uh, know anything about the the uh, case before they got into it and started shooting and producing? And nothing. What were, their, that, what were their surprises? Well, Lance, you know, he was shooting those interviews for me. So, um, you know, when we'd be on a, a flight, you know, going to Pittsburgh, I'd tell him, this is who we're going to interview and this is who he is. And I'd, I'd print some stuff up for him and just try and tell him and he saying wait he's the most respected forensic pathologist in the world I'm like literally in the world he's the expert he's the expert and uh, and then Cyril just Mac, listening way, folks we're talking about right now also in the oh yes sorry to interrupt and uh, and it, it, it would just be too much it, it became a joke with with Lance We'd be going to an interview, and I, I'd just be too tired to try and explain who this person is. And so he would literally be listening to the interview, um, learning this, at the same moment he was shooting it. So it's really funny when you watch the film. Um, Lance was hearing that for the very first time, the information. And so he wasn't... Um, Lance isn't a, necessarily a political person, but he was shocked and um, and saddened that he hadn't known that. I guess he felt the way I felt in the '90s after JFK when I realized I didn't know anything. That what I thought I knew about the Kennedy assassination, and consequently about important parts of our history I was incorrect or just completely ignorant and I think he felt that way too and you get mad at some point and I think he felt that way too you know this is an ideal documentary I feel because it's historical and it also tells the story of the narrative if you will of the John Kennedy assassination you've done that meticulously well you tell the narrative through the various researchers and what they've come up with and then it all just lays out completely in a great story now to me this documentary is ideal for public libraries university libraries public school libraries have you had any results from 
mainstream, if you will. I'm not talking about mainstream media because I'm sure they, they bolt from this. But have you had any success with perhaps libraries as a way to distribute this information? Well, actually, yes. Um, the film has started, has um, been going to some festivals, um, mainstream film festivals. And uh, the Tiburon, it premiered at the Tiburon International Film Festival outside of San Francisco. And it won the Orson Welles Award um, for Excellence in Filmmaking, which is, which for a film in our genre is, I think, very important. Um, and I think it's, it's when you simply tell a human story, um, it, it's, it's not easily dismissed. And, and so I think the vehicle telling the JFK story through the researchers makes, makes the issues that behind the assassination easier to digest for a lot of people. Um, but it, it was at Orlando Film Festival and, um, I mean, the uh, International Free Thought Film Festival in Orlando. And there was a history professor there from a local major university who approached me afterwards and said, and for someone like me, this is one of the greatest um, pats on the back one could receive. He said, you forever change the way I will teach my class. And for a mainstream uh, tenured professor to say that and to, and to tell me I didn't know some of those things. I didn't know. You're inspiring <laughs> people. You see what you're doing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> you've, created, yeah. you've created people asking questions, which is perfect, because that's what you want. You want art to stimulate. You want art to make you look at things differently, think differently, come up with new ideas, because it's only by new ideas, folks, that we're going to move society forward, not from makeup videos. You see how I arc back to that? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I'm just curious how you're going to get the cat videos back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that off air. Um, would you do it again, 14 years of your life? Would you do it again? Well, I, I plan on continuing, so... You know, like so many other other people, um, all these other researchers. It's funny. I after 14 years, I look, I've looked back over what what's happened to me during those years, and you know, I I fell in love and got married, and we bought a house, and dogs, and had two kids, and you know, my mom died and buried her, and my dad died, and I buried him and we had health issues and everyone's healthy and happy but life continues continues and I, I will the music i'm gonna have to go i'm so sorry i can't believe an hour's gone already randy benson's been our guest tonight folks the documentary easy way to get it as always just go to our website you'll see the cover right there just click on it'll take you right to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home the name of the documentary, The Searchers, A Portrait of Researchers of the Assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time.